thank you very much for that. Uh, I'll stand up in a minute when I press the slides through. Let's say I talk for just half an hour, so I'll stop dead on half past, and then that gives us half an hour to chat, which might be, well, certainly more useful for me at least, because I don't know anything from my own voice uh, at all. What I know about obesity is, can be summed up very shortly. I know we have had a big increase since around about 1992 in childhood obesity in this country. The graphs I've seen have been fairly linear, uh, and that is interesting. Why this sudden takeoff? Um, I know recently we've discovered a whole series of genetic effects where some people are more predisposed, <laughs> set up uh, to be obese and others aren't. Some of us, unless you locked us in a prison cell and only slid lettuce under the door, in an obesogenic environment we're going to get fatter. Other people don't, and the distribution is spreading out. I've been really interested in the international distributions of obesity, and again, this is recent because not many people were that obese until relatively recently. And so, in the rich world, we have the United States as the fattest place, and obesity becomes normal. You no longer think you're obese, and that's one thing that can make it easier to be obese, because if obesity doesn't seem to be obese. And in Europe, as far as I'm aware, the UK is still the fattest place in Europe. Um, I haven't seen anything to say that it isn't as yet. Obesity tends to correlate with economic inequality, and then the question is why? In the rich world, it is low, possibly the lowest in Japan. And that is not due to traditional eating habits, because this change has been relatively recent. Um, and so it doesn't make sense. If you go into the equivalent of McDonald's in Tokyo, there are a few McDonald's, but not many of them in Tokyo. They're Japanese fast food chains. And you ask for chips, you get a cup with three beautifully arranged French fries in them. Um, and that's part of the reason I, I see as the difference. Most obesity, as far as I'm aware, I'm saying all these things so that you can correct me and just lay out my ignorance. It's mostly caused by food. It's intake. It's not exercise, it's intake. Eat less, you won't get so big. Eat more, you're going to get bigger. Uh, but exercise matters a little bit, and that's mainly what I want to talk about today. And the environment that stops you doing the exercise, or that makes it more normal uh, to do the exercise. There are many other factors. There is a stress of life. One argument is that things are more stressful uh, in the UK because we have a more precarious economy. Uh, we might have what appears to be very low unemployment. That's because we starve people into work. Um, the unemployed are thinner than everybody else. Somebody checked recently. There are loads of myths. People think that people who are unemployed are fatter and slope around on sofas watching telly, turns out they're actually thinner. But you have to check surveys like understanding society to find that out. So factors such as stress in everyday life can mean you comfort eat. Um, but also factors such as advertising have a huge effect. So in the US about 4% of GDP is spent on advertising. Advertising is all about getting you to do things you don't want to do and they're not sensible for you to do. 
If they were sensible for you to do, you wouldn't need to advertise it, Clashy. Uh, so lots of advertising is for things that are bad for you, including fast food. 4% of GDP in the US, 2% in Europe, 1% in, in Japan. Countries which are better organised don't allow themselves to be poisoned by greedy people who want to make a lot of money out of them. Uh, it's one kind of short summary of the kind of things uh, that's going on. The slide up there, if you've got bored, um, while you've been listening to me, is about cycling. Because Oxford had cycling long before it had most of the colleges and the university was of any consequence. Oxford likes to suggest that it has this ancient university that's terribly, terribly important. It's not ancient. Hardly anything was around for most of its history. Most of it is about 100 years old or less. Uh, all of this up here, where we are now, this was all created because of sex. So the building we're in now was built when the university finally said that the university choosers didn't have to be chased anymore. They're allowed to have sex. Once you're allowed to have sex, you have a wife, you have children, you need a house. You can't stay in college. Uh, you need a big house because you're a well-off university tutor and you need rooms for the servants beneath us and the servants up in the top. This is all very recent. This is what Oxford actually is about. Um, there are other strange things about Oxford. If you wander around Oxford, here's a graph to spend some time looking at. If you wander about Oxford, you'll see that in the middle of Oxford, people are generally thinner. I don't know if you've noticed that. I would love somebody to do a test, and it wouldn't be that hard to do. In fact, you would probably do it from data that's collected uh, for things like the Health Survey for England and other sources. I'd love somebody to do a test about whether universities that interview students end up with thinner students than universities that don't interview them. Um, I just have a suspicion. You know, for undergraduates, we interview three for every place, and we turn down two out of the three. And I just wonder. And this, of course, affects jobs as well. Uh, getting a job is largely about your looks, because you will be interviewed with other people who will have remarkably similar CVs to you, remarkably similar backgrounds, annoyingly similar. So what's the difference when it comes to interview? You could say it's confidence having come over, but the key thing is you get to see how fat, how thin, how good-looking people are. There's been a real lack of study of this kind of thing, because it's really close to the bone. The studies of unconscious bias and of racism and sexism and so on, but just general good-lookism uh, isn't, isn't studied. It's very hard to study it well. Um, the kind of study you need, or well, my favourite little study, is a paper done, I think in 2014, which was looking at identical twins. And it had identical twins, it also had non-identical twins, but who thought they were identical, because they looked so similar that everybody had always told them they were identical, and until somebody checked their genes, they, they didn't know it. And the interesting thing about that paper was that the non-identical genes, the ones who don't share half their genes with the other ones, but who look the same, correlated in terms of educational achievement just as well as the identical uh, twins. So children who look similar to other children tend to do as well in terms of education. And that's because teachers treat children differently 
according to how they look. Right, this graph, you've had long enough to look at it. I, I like these kind of graphs, but this is the only one I've got for you. Um, along the bottom, you've got the take of the 1%. Uh, these are all which countries, it's not selective, I've got all the countries which I could get data. I think this is figure 26 from a book I did called Injustice, updated in 2015. The US is by far the most unequal country. Really weird things go very badly wrong when you become really unequal. Germany became really unequal in the 1930s. Japan became really unequal in the 1930s. USA has become really unequal. Very strange things are going on in the USA. Anyway, it's over here. And these are the more equal countries where the top 1% takes four times less. This is an enormous difference in the amount of money. Um, this essentially buys you a national health service. So you can have two national health services for this, free for this, you know, the US could actually have three entire national health services if it's 1% that's willing to take the same share that they take in Netherlands or Denmark. Um, huge differences in how these countries are arranged and organised. And along the side, you've got an estimate of the proportion of the population who cycles or walk to work as their main form of transport. Now, this isn't because People in the USA, it's about 3% in the USA, are just really lazy and can't be bothered to cycle or walk to work. You just can't do it in the USA. There are often not pavements, you live far too far away from where you work, everything's set up so that you haven't got a choice uh, to do that. Whereas in the Netherlands, it's actually much harder to drive to work. Things are set up to make it much easier to cycle. Uh, but there are other very big differences that really matter. So I'm not saying this causes this. I'm saying there are lots of other things that are related to these two things. One is arranging your society and planning it so that you don't have very poor areas and very rich areas, but you have lots of mixed areas. And if you have lots of mixed areas, then it's easier to make the sensible choice of living relatively near to where you're going to work. You can't choose to do that if you work in Oxford, if you work here because you have to spend four million pounds to buy one of these houses, you can't have one. So people who work here end up living further and further away. The people who clean this room today might have come from Birmingham, um, and they'll probably come on the train. But we have 40,000 people, 40,000, who drive every day to the edge of Oxford and get in the buses or find another way of parking because they can't afford to live in the city. And that creates an amount of carbon pollution, but it also helps them be fat. Because one of the best ways to become fatter, apart from eating more, is to sit in the driving seat of a car. Because the only exercise you get is on one foot if it's an automatic, or two feet if it's not automatic. And a tiny bit of exercise with your hands moving the steering wheel. And the longer your commute, the less energy you're, you're using, the easier it is to get fatter. Um, so I could show you graphs that look similar to this for obesity and so on, but hopefully you, you roughly get the point. There are huge differences between these countries. Right, let's zoom into Oxford then. Um, so Oxford's a little bit thinner than average because of this constant in-migration. This is migrant city. Um, you should feel very welcome here because Almost everybody in Oxford is migrant. 
And if they're not a first generation migrant, they're a second or a third generation. The same applies to people you think of as local. I did a talk yesterday in uh, Oxford's poorest school, which is dramatically poor. It's in the bottom 25 schools in the country. Uh, and I asked the kids who had both parents born in Oxfordshire, and only about 20% of the children had both parents born in Oxfordshire. So even in the parts of the city which is poorest, which you might think of as most local, it's actually migrants. You know. But there is a profile of obesity across. Um, this is all going to be pretty pro-cycling, but it's questions about how do you begin uh, to improve on things. In a city that's already fairly thin, in a country that's fairly fat, um, if I worked in Japan, every year I'd actually be measured with a tape measure. And my colleague in Japan, who's much thinner than me, uh, is always on the edge of 40, I think, is when you're 40 centimetres. That's when you get told off for being too fat. Um, let's see. How many of you cycle? Right, a lot, because you kind of have to cycle, it makes sense to cycle. Uh, how many of you recognise this little place? Yeah, it's the kind of thing that puts people off cycling, right? It's not good, it is, really is dangerous. Don't have anybody ever tell you that this is sane. That's complete madness making people do that. Uh, and it's new, because the UK is the less clever countries in Europe, so we do things like this. More clever countries in Europe are better are better at arranging things. Quite why some countries became cleverer and others don't is hard to say. We know it happened in the 1970s or late 1960s. We know in the Netherlands there was a group of parents who were very angry about their children being killed on the road, who began the campaigns. What we don't know is why that happened in the Netherlands, why it didn't happen in the States. But the nice thing now in terms of studying this is we have these huge differences uh, between these countries. That's the map of Oxford. Uh, so we are just here at the moment. It's a very small city, in artificially small, because it's the largest city between London and Birmingham. It wanted to expand in the 1920s. Some pretty affluent members of the university didn't want that to happen, and the colleges bought up the land all around the edge which they're just about to start building on soon. It's going to be a very interesting two years if you're around. It's going to cause lots of upset. But that's our city. It's pretty constrained. The blue areas, the blue lines, are the recommended cycle routes. And if you're a keen cyclist and want to go out, um, if you just Google the Oxford cycle map, you can find this online. Um, and they look a bit mad and squiggly because it's really hard to find somewhere to recommend somebody to actually cycle safely in the city, but that's where they are. So what I'm going to do now is suggest what could be done to improve this. And this is improving this in one of the places that's best in the country. We have 20 mile an hour speed limits on most of our roads. But Barcelona is, I think Barcelona is a huge area in Barcelona. I've forgotten how many dozens of square kilometers it is. It's about to bring in seven mile an hour limits on cars, just seven miles an hour, um, because they want to make it pedestrian and, and cycle friendly. Okay. Who knows what that road is? There's no reason you should, because when you come to Oxford, you're kind of cocooned in 
one tiny part of this tiny city. It's only 150,000 people. It's worth having an explore when, it, when the weather gets warmer. <coughs> Anybody know that road? Go on. London Road. London Road. Yeah, yeah. correct. I'm just checking. I have to. Yeah. Just to try and make sure I'm not speaking complete rubbish to you to have some, some idea. The Oxford roads are really easy. The nice thing about Oxford being a bit old is that the roads have got really easy names. That's London Road because it goes to London. Okay? And all the roads we're going to be talking about are really easy. Um, the County Council is supposed to be bringing in cycle premium routes. So it was supposed to two years ago. They've completely failed to do it. So my suggestion for this is that you make this major road a cycle premium route. You still allow motorised vehicles on it, but only in one lane. And they can only go slowly. <coughs> and that leaves you two lanes on either side of the motorised vehicles to have four sets of bikes. I think this will happen, but it might not happen for 40 years. It might happen in 20 years' time. Um, I think it's inevitable. And you can see changes in Oxford that have happened. This is the Iffley Road, because it goes to Iffley Village. You can make that just one way inward to motorised vehicles. That's the Abingdon Road, it goes out to Abingdon. Again, you can make it one way, that's the Botley Road. And then there's these two roads here, which really obviously, because they're parallel to each other, actually one there and one literally just there. Okay, these will go first, mainly because the middle class always get nice things first, they get speed humps first and everything else. These roads at one point will go one way. And then you won't just have to cycle route on the pavements and on the roads, you'll have enough room for cycles to overtake each other without worrying about the bus coming behind them. At that point, you get a mini version of Copenhagen. Um, you know, it's normal to cycle, it's nice to cycle. You even have to begin to worry about slightly vicious cyclists cycling too fast. One great advantage Oxford's got, because it's so small, is that people and a culture, and you're anthropologists, I don't know to talk to you about culture, but it's, it's a brilliant culture, and we ought to worry about how to keep it, is this is a city of slow cycling. Um, and it's interesting to work out why. Why is it slow? You get the occasional normally man going a bit fast, but generally it's slow. One theory I've got is it's partly slow because we get a correction every October. Every October a whole load of people turn up. They've mostly never cycled before, so it's pretty scary, <laughs> including the British undergraduates, because we don't let our children cycle in Britain anymore. So they turn up and the first time they got on a bike is at 18. But then if they come from another country, they then try and cycle on the wrong side of the road, as far as we're concerned. And that really slows cycling and everything else down, if you've got people every year all over the place. Anyway, let's speed up, because I've got 10 minutes left. Who's been to the county road? Good, should be higher than that. You're working too hard. Right? <laughs> This is the kind of bohemian little bit of Oxford, right? Clubs, restaurants, that kind of gets a bit more normal here. Nowhere in Oxford is poor anymore. It was in the 1980s, I grew up in this city. Um, everywhere's going to fight. There are no dangerous areas in Oxford anymore. Um, at all. If you want to buy a house in the poorest part, you need now £300,000 the cheapest house in the poorest part of Oxford. That's, That's the dotted line because I'd largely, if I were king, uh, stop cars going all the way up and down it, and buses. But everywhere has to have car and bus access somewhere. 
This is a map of Sheffield, city I lived in for 10 years before I came back here. And you'll see that there are very small blue arrows. The way you make these things not frightening is you draw the arrows very small rather than big. Those are all the one-way streets in the middle of Sheffield. Sheffield already has this kind of system. And this is in the UK. So there's the same map with small arrows. Schools. I'm going to end with telling you something about schools. Oxford's got six state secondary schools. And then a third of the children go to private schools, which is unusually high for the UK. In general, it's about 7%. The private schools are up here. So you'll largely see private school children if you're around here. If you go up to, get the right way, South Parade, which is confusingly north of North Parade, if you go to South Parade, there's a hairdresser at the top of this road, which actually does the, has a sign that says it does the haircuts for different private schools. And I'm not sure if that's a myth or, or whether it's true. But also it's very divided educationally. This is the school in which children do worse. It's down here. Uh, only around about a quarter get their basic qualifications that allow you to do most jobs and hardly ever go to university. This is the Catholic school, which parents who learn to lie and pretend they're Catholic from here get their children to. But only, and a few actual Catholics, but in general it's about pretending. Only about half of them get their basic qualifications. This is the Old Boys School, which is now a school which is mixed Asian white, which is next in the pecking order. It's all very simple geographically. This is a school where the more radical academics send their children, and if they're egotistical they'll tell you about it. Um, it's now absolutely packed, because when I was young only one academic sent her child there, and it had half as many children going. Uh, that's the poshest state school, the child works is even more packed, which is the school that more children cycle to than I think any other school in Britain. But it's also the most affluent school. And they cycle there not because they're particularly right on, but there really isn't any other way of getting there easily. Uh, if the parents tried to drive them, um, it just wouldn't work. And there's a lovely cycle lane, uh, because people build cycle lanes in the 1950s off the roads, so they can, they can get there. And they also cycle there because it has a very big catchment area. Its catchment area goes all the way around here, and so there are children going quite a long way to it. It's catchment area can be that big because so many children here don't go to state schools. Every year it's catchment area moves in a bit. There's really worried academics who aren't quite trendy enough to send their children here, try and get in the catchment area for this other posh state school. But these are the two posh state schools. And finally, there's one over there, um, which is such a long way away from the other ones that it kind of behaves differently. That's better. Now, the reason for showing you those and talking about obesity and cycling is, at the moment, most parents, fairly passionately really, worry so much about their children on roads that they don't let them cycle. The majority don't let their children cycle, even in Oxford. But if they do, they don't want them cycling all the way across Oxford over these major roads. Um, if you ever wanted to break this kind of division between the city's schools, 
you'd have to have some teachers moving between schools and you'd have to eventually have some pupils moving between schools. Slightly like busing in the US, but without a bus, because you'd cycle. You're talking, I was talking about there, two miles, six to 12 minutes. If it was safe, it's really easy to get anywhere in this city on the bike. You can be unfit and do it. And we're going to be getting electric bikes soon. We've already got them. Uh, in the Netherlands, what's the exact percentage? I think it's 25% of pensioners cycle. In the UK, it's 1% of pensioners do that. Um, lastly, here's one of the private schools. The government wants the university to sponsor a school to try to reduce social inequality, uh, increase social mobility. What the government doesn't realise, even though they almost all went to this university, is that the university already does sponsor a school. Uh, sponsoring a school doesn't necessarily reduce social inequality. So that's this little suggestion for you. Just something practically that could be done. So on these big arterial routes, you have a car or buses going one way or in one lane, going at 20 miles an hour or even 15 but possibly getting where they want to faster, because Oxford clogs up at the moment. And you have two bikes on one lane, two on the other, maybe a motorised scooter as well, and you get more people around. Both universities want to increase the number of students dramatically. They've got plans too, it's gonna to happen. A country that is collapsing economically is not going to stop profit-making businesses like universities not bringing not export pounds. So there's going to be more staff, more students here. There's going to be more tourists because the world's middle class wants somewhere to go on holiday. And after you've been to Paris and London, you need a second tier destination. You can't stop them coming. So also has to get ready for more tourists. And we have to worry about obesity. So to me, it all makes sense. It, it is madness having this constant stream of each one of those things going past is a tonne of metal and glass that is the most dangerous thing for you at your ages in the city. It's the most likely way in which you're going to die in the next two years is by being hit by one of those cars. But we've become normalised to it. I've got three minutes left, so I'm going to keep, keep to my half hour. don't know how well you can read this, it's a notice from 1968. Have any of you ever met a university proctor? No, you can spot them they have to wear the really silly dress even during the day. So if you see somebody wearing completely ridiculous clothes, it could be a proctor. They were the policemen at the university, they still exist. Um, I think they used to hang around the train station to stop the young men going to London and being naughty. So, and in 1968, they issued things like this, um, saying, please, can you not park your motor car in the city of Oxford for the undergraduates? These slides, this slide is less important because it's about education, but all these things are, are related. I won't go through these points. I'll just show you two more graphs. Um, and again, this could fit. We can't prove that any of these things actually connect because we've only got about 25 countries to study. We've only got about 20 years' history of them. But this is ability in maths. And inequality. Uh, simple maths test done by PISA in 2012. 
richest countries in the world. Again, the US, most unequal. The UK, practically the 51st state already before we sign that trade agreement and get Trump health service. That's what we're expected to do. Um, not very good at maths, not very good at maths. All equal countries, fairly good at maths. Singapore, ridiculously good at maths because they teach them how to do a maths test. Singapore. The thing I wanted to show you, though, isn't that. This is what happens at age 15. It's this. This is the same maths test, but given to people a little bit older, up to age 24. This was done about five years ago. And it suddenly all lines up beautifully. There was a rough combination before, but when you look at the ability of young adults to do maths in these different countries, you see the difference. Now, how many of you are from the United States? About half. Well, don't worry, we're not going to give you the maths test. And you all have done math, right? You did math at some point. How many of you are still doing math, being taught it? Being taught it or doing it? Being taught it. Oh, but using it, you are using it still, okay. What the US, I think, does and what we do um, is we teach <coughs> math to get you a grade, a sat grade. Because that really matters. Because without those grades, you don't move on to the next stage. A few people might actually go on and use their maths, but most of them go off to do something different, like anthropology. And all that matters is getting a high grade so you can say, I'm especially clever, you should pick me. Um, if that's how you teach maths, and that's what we do in this country, we desperately try to get people A stars, A's, or C's. This is anything that matters. A B is a fail because you haven't got an A, or A star, a D is a fail. So, maths teaching is all about getting a child to get a high score on the day of their maths test. Even for children who are doing very badly, there are now limits to try to get them up. We get children to do well at the test, but they don't do, they don't actually learn maths, so they can't do it a few years later. It's completely pointless from the point of view of education. Meanwhile, in these other countries, whatever they were doing, they taught them maths in a way that means they can still do maths five years later, which suggests they might have learned something. And the vague connection with recency, they've also managed to either ignore adverts telling them to eat more fast food or elect governments that don't allow people to do that. They've managed to build towns and they continue to manage to build towns in ways that allow you to exercise a bit when you move around and you don't have to pay on the car. And it's all, as far as I can see, quite closely connected. And it's a relatively recent natural experiment. Go back to the 1960s and 70s, in the 60s, the United States was more equitable than the United Kingdom, even than Sweden. Right, so this has only been something that's developed since that period. The same period as you see these big differences in obesity, these big differences emerging in ability, big differences emerging in politics. That's my half hour. Please think of some questions that particularly tell me generalisations that I've got completely and utterly well, and the slide I'll leave up, that's the 1927 plan for the expansion of Oxford. Published in 1927, never happened, all of this hasn't been expanded into. It's a beautiful circle. The City Council now has a blown-up version of this in, in their offices, because a friend of mine discovered it two years ago, the plan. It's a circle, because the main form of transport in 1927 in Oxford 
was to cycle. And if you cycle, because it's some effort, you lose some calories, not as much as walking, but you really don't want to cycle much further than that. So that was the original plan. If Oxford does expand, I wish they'd go back to 927 plan and base it on cycling. Um, because there isn't any space for more cars and we don't need we don't need to become an American city with a series of freeways being built around the edge of the town and that might sound ridiculous to you that it might even happen but the county currently have at least two proposals in for very large roads in the county they just don't publicise it very much because they know it wouldn't be uh, that popular thank you